0: Namo Tassa Bhagavato Rahato Samma buddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Rahato Samma Namo Tassa Bhagavato Rahato Samma Sambuddhassa. Udham Dhammang Sanghammasami. So we consider the ways that the. Uh, Dhamma teaching uh, is presented, and what Buddhism is about in some ways is uh, wisdom, compassion. These can be seen as quite uh, two aspects of it. Uh, the Buddha is called the, in the very word Buddha means kind of awakened, and uh, it's a lot of wisdom in it, and it's a lot of discernment, a lot of discrimination, a lot of lists. Uh, do this, don't do that. And this ability to discriminate the discrimination is sometimes seen as a kind of a, a negative concept, you know, we discriminated against. Actually, uh, Buddhist wisdom is highly discriminatory. <laughs> it, it's, that's what it's about. It's about discriminating uh, what's skillful from what's unskillful, what's pointless and what's useful. Uh, you know, making, making useful discrimination, not not stupid discrimination, or or um, discrimination, discriminations that have no no sense to them. It's not about bias, but about clear discrimination. And so it's very much about establishing lines and boundaries, you could say. You know, we do this, we don't do that. Uh, very simply speaking, um, and uh, you know, which is which is kind of very clear, but um, and you know, the very sound of it, people would like feel that they'd like to something that's more boundless, you know, boundless, free, more open, and, and less kind of caught up with doing, doing this and not doing that. So we have also teachings on compassion and kindness, which in a way are boundless. They're literally called the ones that have no boundaries, the measureless mind uh, that does not discriminate between self and other uh, Good people, bad people, uh, you know, just whatever it is. There's a sense of, you know, not creating aversion around it. Uh, so it's a sort of, yeah. You know, so it's a sort of boundaryless quality, and the two depend, you know, help and support each other. And the aim, and in a way, these two in themselves are not final, but the final is is complete release, which means the mind has no inner agitations or or standpoints or positions it's it's released it can't be tracked, it can't be traced and this is of course very difficult to talk about but the Buddha mostly said well, you know, if you practice the practices um, that I've laid down in terms of wisdom, kindness and so on then this is what what they lead to (laughs) and if they're not leading that way it means that something's going something's going wrong, we haven't really got the balance of it and sometimes the balance is just this sense of keeping the two aspects in mind You know, there's a sense of discernment clarity, there's also a sense of empathy um, yeah, so in fact this is what the one of the things that the Buddha gave his teachings for because in his own experience of release he thought well you know right that's, that's that then, you know, there's nothing particularly to, I have to do for myself anymore. I, I don't have any particular drives or purposes or aims. So, you know, that's the end of that then. I mean, you know, I'm released from all these uh, things that cause me struggle and uh, conflict. And then this sense of empathy arose called Anukampati, which means Anu means together with, and Kampa means something like trembling but I don't, I don't think he was literally shaking. It means the heart is sensitive and sort of senses and resonates with the current idiom with the the, the plight or the, the experience of all other beings. So a sense of fundamental sympathy um, with other beings. So because of this, he says, well, because of this quality, uh, this in a way is is the Buddha's descent or landing on the planet, you know, coming back to this this plane of existence. Okay, well, I've still got this body, I can still speak, I'll go out and, you know, offer these teachings in a very boundless way to whoever uh, would like to hear it. And yet still, there were occasions when the Buddha declined to teach when he felt that, uh, that uh, there was no point. You know, when somebody would just get more confused by 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 words, he just remain silent. So there is always that sense in which even the Buddha's compassion is is uh, and kindness is is moderated in, in in how he manifests. You know, so uh, for example, when one of the one wanderer was asking about whether there was a self or not, you know, what happened to his self, was his self this or his self that? The Buddha just just sort of smiled (laughs) because he recognized whatever he said this person's mind was so confused he'd just get get more and more confused because he's up in his head the best thing is just to remain gentle and quiet and let the person kind of calm down because anything more that's said to him would just stir up more ideas you know and viewpoints so sometimes the Buddha did not did not teach um Out of compassion, realizing the word verbal stuff doesn't always work, so there's wisdom there, even in terms of uh, in deciding when one speaks and when one doesn't speak, and what one speaks of and what one doesn't speak of. Saying if you you should, if you you should, if there are things that could be said that cause skillful states to arise, speak of those. If what one says does not cause skillful states to arise, then do not speak of this. You know, and this is not something we want to go into. So it's very, you know, kind of clear sense of, of supervision of, of what one says and does. These are things that are kind of good to consider, that that we do place boundaries, you know, and in a way the. Particularly in, in Sangha life, one of the features of it is it's extremely boundaryed, you know. In terms of uh, senses, there's things we don't go out to, we don't we, we stop doing, we don't we put you could say fences around, we don't involve ourselves with, and not because you don't care, but because recognizing that to involve yourselves with entertainments, with politics, with um, you know just Draws energy out, and into an area that uh, is not going to be uh, conducive. So, for, in sangha life, anyway, this is kind of what the aim of the recluse is. The samana is. The samana is not a total position for all of all of humanity. It's a particular uh, kind of feature. Within the human predicament, that acts in a certain way, one serves the world by doing this. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that everybody should become a monk or a nun. There well, might be an interesting concept, wouldn't it? Who's going to cook the dinner? Um. <laughs> but it's not going to happen, I don't think, at this rate, anyway. <laughs> so, but got, so in, in in practice, you know, we're saying we're not we're not Saying this is this is the total answer to everything. Saying no, we're providing a particular um, quality in the in the human experience that has certain uses to it, and for that we we ought, we sacrifice ourselves. To, There's things I don't do, and places I don't go, and things I don't um, do a lot of thinking about or talking about. Mm-hmm. Other people can do that, and how wonderful there could be this kind of. Mandala, but what I can offer is a tr- sense of, of restraint, of dispassion, of calm, of, um, of a kind of a ceasing, an ending, a kind of emptying out where the mind begins to, you know, dis- sort of release itself from these energies and emotions and thoughts, which is it's, that's the offering. And that requires uh, certain boundaries of where we go, even how, what we involve ourselves with. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, uh, in the border for a recluse, the Buddha even said, "You shouldn't even be that sociable." Actually, mm-hmm. how can you be not sociable and yet compassionate? Well, your act of being not sociable is a compassionate action. <laughs> strange enough i mean if it's if it's flawed with ill will then it, that's not that's not appropriate but if it's a sense of uh one does not get you know what sociability can do is that it if we uh involve ourselves in a lot of social uh, interactions then there is a sense of attachment that builds up as energy is dissipated um we take, you know, we favor certain people and we don't favor other people. I like, the, I want to be with the people I like, agree with, uh, follow my views. Those are the people I want to be with. I want to give them a lot of attention and energy. Other people, uh, those other people, forget them. Um, and that's what sociability does. Nobody socializes with people they don't like or don't agree with. <laughs> yeah, so sociability generally means you, you kind of. Um, intensify your involvement with some kinds of people and you lessen less involved with other kinds of people. So, by itself, it creates a, a bias, doesn't it? Yeah. So the act of, of not being sociable doesn't mean there's a cold-heartedness, but there's almost the sacrifice of of, of that very attractive energy. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know it's fun to be with people you like, having a really good time. But so no, I can't I can't do that because if I do, then I will favour that particular position, those particular kinds of people, and I will neglect <laughs> or fill myself with some antipathy antipathy towards others. You know, so you might say, I like you know liberal progressives, conservative rednecks, yeah. Scum of the earth, you know. Well, what kind of thing is that for a Buddhist monk to be doing? Um, So that sense of, you know, compassion for the people we like, people we agree with, people we dislike, people we don't agree with. So for that, you have to kind of disengage a little. You know, disengage a little. So in order that the compassion, the wisdom element creates the boundaries so that the compassion element can be thoroughly spread, you know, not just partialized. So the wisdom element creates the sense of restraint uh, so that instead of following our, 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 our reflexes and biases, we check those and then we look more holistically. Yeah. So that's how they work together. So It's also the, the wisdom, the, that sense of boundaries are, is bound up with renunciation. And I find this, take, this takes interest, interesting forms arise out of that. Out of that, it's almost like you put that particular um, element into the dynamic of the mind, and its things start to form around that. Just like when you put a stick in a stream, you get particular. Ripples and currents, because the mind is so dynamic. As soon as you introduce a particular, you know, uh, potency or a particular direction, then all kinds of, of forms arise out of that. Um, so I sometimes reflect on the irony of um, in my own life of of uh, you know wishing to to uh, be more. Introspective, and, and I really like that. I enjoy the, the mind, being more introspective, and then meditating, and then finally finding myself in this place in, in Thailand around three years, living on, not exactly on my own, but pretty much secluded all the time. Uh, quite introspective for three years, first three years. Didn't, didn't hardly talk to anybody, almost lost the ability to do so. <laughs> because the people I talked to were Thais, I couldn't get their language. So, um, And the sense was, well, if you just, you know, watch the, be with the breathing, be mindful all the time, then this is all you need to do. And then you get, you know, suddenly one day or somehow or another enlightenment happens out of this process. So putting that particular thing in, so okay, that's what we do. This is what we do in order to get it together. So in order to do that, you have to have a place to live, right? So you find a place to live. place to live, well, you've got to make sure it's swept clean, so you don't need to bother with insects. Okay, do that. And then, you know, but as you realize when you establish these places that, okay, you're sweeping, then the roof needs fixing. So you fix the roof so you can get inside and meditate better, then... Actually, you need some heating. So, you get a contractor in, you get a heating engineer, diagrams, plans, projects. Okay, it's in order that you can find a place to sit in the warm. Okay, well, then you could do contractors, we better get some funds. So, you're sort of doing fundraising. You to check the accounts, get a manager in, so check the accounts for you. Then, you've got to have somebody who supervise the manager. Okay, so another bit of piece. And then, you're finally, doing all this amount of stuff around the idea of the, the, having this space inside in which you can meditate. And actually the space of your meditation starts to disappear underneath this huge amount of stuff you've got to do to, to get it to happen. Till eventually your meditation practice is really watching your mind going through all these processes of fixing and changing establishing. and establishing. This then becomes the meditation. <laughs> it's like... So, you start to contemplate the excitement, the inspiration, the frustrations of not getting the work done, the new ideas that pop up, the plans, the controversies, the, the discussions, you start to contemplating all this stuff. So the path you know seemingly out of the world takes you into the world, but you keep the intention of being in the world, being in the world, in order to understand and become dispassionate towards it. You know, so that you're not... You know, I think in the early days, there was this sense of, well, let's hurry up and get this all done, so that we'll get to the end, and then we'll be able to meditate. So we'll be working like crazy to get it all done, to to build the place where so we can get to meditate. Well, I wanted for about five years, till the penny started to drop, that maybe it isn't going to get done. So... <laughs> Then uh, So then it becomes much more a matter of doing something that you know will never get done. Picking up something you know has no end. And even if it did get done, by that time very likely you'll have gone somewhere else anyway. So this is conducive to dispassion. It's not the dispassion of of not doing, because then one can get very passionate about not doing. You know, like, like, I want to be someone who doesn't do anything, so then we get quite attached and passionate about that. But the dispassion about doing something, which in a way is secondary to one's aims, is unfinished, is not what you want to do, but you do it anyway. Um, this is an interesting process to be in. And uh, in that, uh, you know, still the fun, the, these underlying qualities of, well, it'd be nice if it would be done, or, uh, or even, why do we have to discuss this so much? Why can't we just get on with it? Um, we decided this yesterday. Why does somebody objecting? you doing now? And that, all those kind of things. oh, there's another one, another little piece of irritation, just relaxing out of that. You know, <laughs> there's another piece of impatience or frustration, and just pract- practicing with that. So that, in a way, becomes the meditation. Interesting enough. Not that I especially advocate, you know, taking on a whole lot of stuff, but life kind of does it for you. So you don't really need to. I haven't found a great need to, uh, you know, deliberately seek out things to do or people to be with, just because being around, it happens, and then you start contemplating the energies that happen around that. The wanting to get close to people, the wanting to have more people, want to have less people. This one's really interesting. Um, a particular monk you think is great who then goes and disrobes <laughs> or goes somewhere else you know you go oh dear another one you know until the mind does realize that dispassion is the quality that can you know thoroughly know it all Now, when sometimes we consider things like love and compassion and things of this nature, we consider them very much from the emotional register, like the quality, the intensity of the energy that, of the heart that fills the system, that the amount we're stirred up. And it's generally a pleasant stirring up, at least at first. We feel kind of enthused, filled, um, alive with that, that energy running through us. Uh, we rather enjoy that being in love having the sense of compassion even in its kind of more refined forms devotion, religious ecstasy the oneness of God being one with God, loving all beings this sense of amazing high that we can get actually you know, um, you know love, love for God is probably even more ecstatic than love for other people because God never has a bad day <laughs> It's safe, you know. It never kind of gets grumpy or fed up, or you know, as long as you can keep projecting onto this this uh, being, you, you never see him. So you never see him having a bad day. He doesn't say anything, so you, you can't disagree with him. So it's wonderful. Um, the religious uh, ecstasy is a kind of flawless sort of love because uh, God never lets you down, basically because he doesn't exist. <laughs> They so can't let you down. As far as I've noticed, all the things that exist <laughs> sooner or later do let me down. <laughs> They're not kind of boundless and ultimate. They're all limited, you know. So you don't get ecstatic. You get dispassionate. You get compassionate. You say, okay, yeah, he's like that. And, well, is yeah, okay, he's got his limitations, but, you know, so it's important. You know, so I do too. You know, you get more of that nature. So you don't get ecstatic. Uh, so Buddhism isn't really ecstatic. I think it's a bit flat, isn't it? it Would be nice to be kind of like Sufi ec- ecstasy union with the divine. We could twirl in this rapture uh, and get into this. You know, drunk on the ecstasy of the of the divine. Buddhism, you don't get drunk on anything. (laughs) Not even a tipple. You know, it's totally cold, sober. (laughs) Non-ecstatic. Miserable. And Theravada is probably the least ecstatic of the lot. I mean, this is... (laughs) You know, in Tibetan, you can get a little bit, you know, up and... uh, uh, and celebratory—it's not, it's, you know—we don't really celebrate very much, or on one that you way. Know, like, it's not so sort of joy of being. We talk about the, um, you know, the cessation of phenomena, <laughs> <laughs> rather than the joy of being. <laughs> so why is it so so dour? <laughs> 'Cause the aim is release. <laughs> uh, but the lack of celebration actually doesn't mean there's a lack of compassion or lack of kindness and non aversion. It just means it's you know, it, it's it's it means there's no resistance, no aversion, no dismissal of all of it. Yeah you know, of the miserable, of the brutal, of the lovely, of the bright. You know, of the dying, of the diseased, of the born. When you go through the whole run of it, you know, it doesn't make you jump up in the air and click your heels. You know. But you can, when you really thoroughly survey the world with the mind of compassion, the Buddha is supposed to have done this every morning. His morning puja, if you like, his morning duty was to get up. You know he sleep two or three hours and just contemplate whatever he could be reach with his awareness with this sense of compassion you know what where Where can this resonance find you know uh, a subject today what can it where can it go you know what, what how can I offer help so he actually surveys the whole of that, not to who I like or my buddies, but who in this realm is actually most available, it could be you know, a beggar it could be a murderer like Angulimala, a serial killer it could be, you know, Visaka the great matriarch of of, uh, Savati who had 120 grandchildren it could be just somebody from the most sort of you know, embedded in the world, embedded in depravity impoverished regal, celestial, a um, whole lot, you know, recluses, ascetics, nutcases, but realising that, that somehow, not towards the people, like, but to where can it actually strike the chord that allows that person in themselves to suddenly see where they are, to, to, to step out of where they are not to embrace them with a feeling of, you know, with warmth, but to touch them at the place where their minds can turn, shift. Yeah. And sometimes that isn't always such a, you know, a lovely expression. In the case of Angulimala, for example, the great murderer who was looking to kill his thousandth Person, in order to fulfill uh, a particular promise he'd made, which we needn't go into right now. So he's going to kill this thousandth person. And the Buddha recognizes this. Is, you know, and the, uh, so he thinks, my goodness, if he does this, he'd have killed his thousand per- thousandth person. But um, all this act of killing. He needs, but right at this point where he's just about, there's a sense of a heightened intensity to the moment, you might say. Like it's this is the last one, he's really you know, right there. Can you, can you get it? You know, Right at the edge of doing something that's going to bring a big shift. So he's very keyed up for this moment. This is going to be his final kill. He says, well, I'm going to go there so he can try and kill me. Yeah, And so he goes to where the Murder murderer is, is coming, and he, he presents himself to the murderer, you know, who's, who's a formidable warrior. And he just starts walking, walking away, and the and Gulimala comes running after him. And the Buddha, by his psychic powers, manages to walk slowly and yet keep ahead of this murderer who's running after him. And so the murderer says, hey, why are you, how, do you, how are you doing that? You know, how are you walking? Why, are you, why don't you stop? And the Buddha says, I have stopped. He says, you haven't stopped. You're walking. I have stopped. He says, I thought you recluses were supposed to tell the truth. He says, I have stopped. I have stopped killing. And because of this, I've stopped the round of rebirth. And just that, you know, at that moment... You know, she created a situation of extreme dramatic intensity, where this person's one pointed on this moment's going to finish his his debt, and is in a state of frustration of trying to finish it off. So the mind is extremely focused on this aim, and that's where the Buddha presents this teaching on on you know if you do this action, you will never have stopped in terms of rebirth in terms of future you'll be going on and on in this miserable state of violence and self hatred forever. This is the time to really stop. Stop this ceaseless chain of action. So this resonated with the the uh, the murderer. And he you know, suddenly recognised the, the the hell realm he was putting himself into. Now this is not, um, on one level, not a loving thing. The Buddha didn't kind of go up to him and give him a big hug and say, you're really all right, we love you. It's because of your abusive childhood patterning that you're feeling this way and we can talk about it. It wasn't an embracing gesture. So instead of using the word all-embracing kindness, which is one way of looking at it, think of it thorough, thorough, total, in-depth, which the manifestation of it it's not particularly sweet or sentimental or emotionally uh, enthusing, but it's applying the, the compassion to apply wisdom at the right point because the Buddha himself is not discriminating between a murderer and a saint, saying that you know this murderer may have the potential for liberation, whatever he's done, and that's that's how compassion and wisdom work together. But it's very, so it's, a, it's a, a compassion that is, is uh, emotionally, you might say, very cool. Mm. Because of its coolness, it has a far wider and steadier spread than when it's heated or warm. You know, when we get, uh, uh, say, with people we really enjoy, then we tend to get warmed up. And we enjoy that, get more excited, and so on. And you get tremendous emotional discharges. And that's part of what people do. Um, and, you know, in a large run of things, I don't, you know, I have a problem with that. Um But it's you want to get to the point when you have done that enough, when you've laughed and cried enough, when you've uh, enjoyed and embraced and got angry enough and felt the feelings enough. I so said, "Yeah, yeah, you know, I can put more into this. I can make more out of that. I can get more saturated in that. Somehow there's a point in us, rather like the point in Angulimala's mind, we think, uh, I don't want to keep going on. <laughs> you know, This is what you know birth, or some of the rebirth, but actually further birth, or further becoming is about, uh, which is what the, the Buddha's teaching is there to cut, It means we can go on recreating ourselves. We can go on perpetuating and intensifying our Mm. dramas. We can go on intensifying and perpetuating our identity. We can build up our stories. We can build up our pathologies. We can build up our favorites. We can follow that. And, And by and large, that's what we will do. I will do that. Unless something actually stops me. That's, that's the default thing. I want to go, something in me wants to go on being more me. You know, having more of what I want and less of what I don't want. Being more with the people I want to be with and less with the people I don't want to be with. Doing the things I like doing and less these boring, tedious things. You know? And the mixture of restraint and responsibility that is the Sumner ethic stops me doing that. <laughs> you know I don't and I, after all I deeply respect it because although it's, it's certainly you know, uh, uh, puts pressure on and can be quite draining at times you know, it stops it, it helps me stop being less, less of me there isn't that ongoing perpetuation of, of the meanness of my, you might say, commonly common parlance, colloquially speaking, my, my ego, my my sense of self. And as an experience, that experience is one of having finally more room in my heart and mind real room not begrudging room but real generous space for a wider spectrum of experience you know to which the point of liking and disliking gets less acute I don't something I don't like dislike Hmm. I suppose I don't like that but it doesn't it's not the dominant um dominant characteristic It's like, can you just get wider and bigger, wider and wider to be with more of it? Not because you particularly are craving for more of it, just because that gives you a greater sense of span and and steadiness to be in the world. Hmm? Yeah, we recognise. Say, you know, what I'm saying. This is not a particularly celebratory or in a manifest way or ecstatic experience. What are the? What are the? What's the beginning of it? You know, the Buddha or the story? It's purely a legend. Is the four signs: old age, sickness, death, and the recluse. Well, whoopee! You know, this is, looks great, doesn't it? <laughs> old age, sickness, death, and the recluse. But, you know, at least three of those are inevitable. And when you look at it, it's so normal, so absolutely normal, totally 100% normal. How many people have really thoroughly embraced that experience, that perception? How many people find themselves shocked at death Blown away, shattered, in denial of it, unable to cope with it. It's the most normal and obvious thing in the world, isn't it? It's more normal than being born. I mean, it's only. It's it's difficult to get born. You may not get born, but for sure, once you're born, you're going to (laughs) die. And yet, who can be with that? Without feeling, oh, no. I intellectually accept it, but emotionally I feel myself really, you know, knocked around by that. Separation from the loved. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. All that is mine, you know, beloved and pleasing, my crockery, my house, my hair, my body, my thoughts, my reasoning all that I really favor and delight in, well, it's not mine, it's going to pass away. You can, you can do the arithmetic. Can you emotionally broaden to, to let that sit there without, you know, really sit there without feeling disturbed, thrown around by it? That's the point. This is not a dissociation. But uh, a thorough knowing beyond passion. Beyond approval and disapproval. Beyond purpose and aim. So the world in general believes in the passionate. If you look in the uh, media... It's the passionate that gets the headlines. Yeah. It's interesting one when 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 one self becomes the, the object of the passion. So sometimes I can read these reports about Cheetos. It sounds like a kind of inferno of uh, <laughs> intense <laughs> scheming nastiness, and you think, "Wow, oh, they such an interesting place." There's people plodding around, you know, doing a bit of weeding and people coming off in and people nodding and falling asleep in the meditation. It doesn't feel that kind of intense at all, but when you look at the reports or think, my goodness. And, <laughs> you know, because the passionate is, is more, hits us a lot more strongly. It gets us some registers. gets us going. That's what we call knowledge. We feel that's, that's the real thing. The world in general believes in that, in what we can get stirred up by. The perspective in general, you know, the general perspective for, for realization is whatever arises is of the nature to cease. It's kind of like a, like a snowflake, it's just as it's forming, it's melting, as it's forming, it's melting. It doesn't even last for an instant. It's because it's very experience of it coming into your mind is also met with the, with the realisation it's going to pass. So it doesn't really get hold. It's just it's it's just like a cloud passing through. Yeah. Now this may think, you may think, well that means you just sort of sit there like a turnip for the rest of your life, letting clouds move over you. But it isn't quite like that either, because... That, in a way, is the, is the inner domain. But you begin to recognize the kind of actions that are needed in order to uh, ward off the biases of dismissiveness, of uh, disregard, or of fascination, you know, which in terms of action is what we tend to do. We either freeze, look the other way, or fight and hang on so in order to balance the move against those in terms of action you have to take on particular actions you know? so a lot of our life is about right action right speech talking figuring things out trying this trying that working this in, working this you know with a sense of you know we're doing this in a sort of looking at how we can act speak in patient ways rather than impatient ways yeah. without, the, without the endless sense we're going to fix something tomorrow but just how do we work in patient compassionate wise ways recognizing right now we just have to stop because things are too charged everybody's too, too charged up we've got to take it, just rest again and come back and sometimes it's like that. Remember we've had sometimes in this Sangha topics, you know, we've had crises or conflicts going on, and all we knew was we can't we can't we're not in a state to really do much about this. You know, wait. So there's a wait for a I think sometimes one occasion waited was about at least five years. And after that five years, finally, almost without discussion, we thought, oh, that's what we do. It was like we all hit the ground at the same place. Then there wasn't anything to talk about. <laughs> there was this famous incident in the, in the Buddha's time, the quarrelling monks of Gosambi, who had a dispute over, the, over, the, over a minor aspect of the discipline. And they were wrangling with each other, and the Buddha said, "Don't wrangle with each other." And they were saying, "Look, this is important, Lord. this is principles." I said "Please." he says, "No, just don't, don't wrangle with each other." And They said, "Look, Buddha, step aside, Lord. We'll figure this out. You know We'll do our discussions." So they all steamed up. So it just led to more wrangling. And the Buddha said, "Well, fine, OK, I'm, out, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm walking off." So then, beautifully, at uh, this occasion, then the, the Buddha left, and then the lay people thought, hey, where's the Buddha gone? These quarrelling monks have driven away, we're not going to feed them anymore. <laughs> and suddenly everybody thought, oh, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> this amazing uh, action of the lay community Say, so, right, we'll just stop feeding it. Suddenly Amazing how people came to their senses and and started to forget about their need for purity. So you better go and sort this out. And then the Buddha, when they all arrived, they, they said, we go and meet the Buddha again. And they all gathered and the Buddha said, okay, everybody, all the people have been quarreling, good, bad, mean, nasty, whatever. Everybody gets same lodgings. Everybody, same treatment. Everybody, same food. You know, just settle down. And then, everybody settled down. And then suddenly, as they all settled, they found this place where everybody settled together. They thought, oh, oh dear. We said some silly things, oh dear. And the other group said, oh dear. We said some silly things too. (laughs) They just got together and said, we apologize. And then immediately, as soon as that, as soon as they hit the ground together, They could actually see, oh, you're right. That was it, finished. But how long it took to actually arrive at that place and uh, the the place of dispassion. And for that uh, requires the wisdom of knowing when's the time to act, when's the time to speak, when's the time to just say, stop, we need to go to another level here, um... And find a sense of of uh, letting go in our own minds of our own actions. Mm-hmm. So this was another way, you know, the Buddha taught, not by not by doing anything or saying anything, but just basically by leaving. So he's setting up a certain set of of, of, of of a chain of events that would have their own dynamic. So sometimes that's part of it. So compassion can have a range of emotional flavors from the sharp, severe, the... uh, Ajahn Chah was famous for his playful compassion, teasing people. (coughs) Teasing people. Remember the story of uh, uh, you know when teacher Ram Das was in uh, he'd been in Thailand with a group of other Dhamma teachers, and he was kind of doing a lot of yoga and exercising and living on beaches and he was getting really, uh, you know, into his, into his body, feeling very fit and healthy, tanned and bright. And they took it to see Ajahn Chah. and Ajahn Chah said, who's this old guy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a playful, he could say, playful poke at uh, how Ram Dass was getting a little bit, you know, excited or a little bit identifying with his physical state, his yogic state. Ajahn Chah was often doing things of that nature to people, doing numbers on people. Mm. This is when the the picture we have in the hallway of Ajahn Chah, which I think most people recognize as a very fine piece of art, and the, the person who did that uh, was, an, he was an Anagarika, who'd been a, a, a pavement artist, and, uh, and but as you probably can, would figure out, a uh, fair degree of intensity, you know, to, to to do things with that sense of meticulous attention. It's very meticulous, very lifelike uh, piece of work. So, yeah, and he's done it all in pastels, which is a very demanding medium because you only have to smudge it a little. Yeah, it's not like oil, you can't... So if you even put your finger on it, it's going to touch it. So he's extremely meticulous about how he did it, and he gets so psyched up to get it exactly right. He did the whole draw, whole thing, and every thought it was perfect. And he looked at it for weeks and weeks and weeks, and he thought no. And he, then he rubbed out the entire background and did a new background. Now, to take the background out of a out of a, a painting, out of a drawing, which is in chalk, without affecting the figure, it, it takes some doing. As you can imagine, it was a dark background. And he took out the dark background and put this pale blue background in without affecting the figure. So that requires an exceptionally fine degree of attention. So this. And then he, then he made the frame, he wasn't going to let anybody else make the frame, so he made the frame, which is rather like grass or bamboo, that's the effect of it, so it's got this sense of something that resonates with Ajahn Chah's forest life, he built the whole thing. And then Ajahn Chah came over to England, to himself. Mm-hmm. So they, so they, they said, well, you know, Venerable, would you like to see this drawing, painting we've done of, of the, this Person's done of you. And, oh, yeah, okay, so we got and looked at at look this painting, looked at it. So you know, what's he going to say? What's he going to say about this drawing? If I scribbled all over it, would you be upset? <laughs> now he might have said, "Wow, that's wonderful! You put so much effort into that. It's really wonderful, fantastic what you've done." I'm a, I've never seen a drawing as good as that. And those would have been true, true words. That would have been a lovely thing, generous thing to say, wouldn't it? But do you think that would have caused the person to step out of th- being a painter, being an artist, getting identified with it? Yeah. Wouldn't it have actually in- made more of it? Like, oh really, I'm a painter, I've done this one. you know? But, uh, you know, the, the sense of touching it. You know, uh, just so that the person is actually out of compassion. Because the amount of intensity and um, energy this person put into a drawing, which is a- actually only a drawing. And Ajahn Chah, in a way, is saying, you know, we all know this is a very beautiful piece. We don't even need to say it. What, what we don't know is that your mind is more important to me than this painting and I want to help you to let go of that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. the state of your mind is more important to me than this, this beautiful painting that you've done. He didn't say that, but that's what the, you know, placing that remark on that particular point, that was it was about. And you step back and think, "Wow, well, yeah, I guess I would," or looking for the applause or the complaints, and suddenly you get a, something that comes back to, "Are you holding on or not?" Because, of course, you know the painting could easily be destroyed, and whatever, um, whether it's good or bad, it's not going to get you out of suffering, out of out of attachment, is it?" It just kind of brings you back upon yourself to so what am I getting born into? What am I putting my energy into? How am I clear about that? Whatever I put my energy into in that way it's gonna cause more bondage, more more selfhood, more I am this. It's gonna narrow my focus. Mm-hmm but it isn't because these things are useless and pointless and feeble but because it's it's almost a statement and this is where a celebration is that actually your mind and your liberation is more important more potent more beautiful than all the paintings and architecture and music in the world that's a celebration isn't it mm-hmm. And that's what the, but it's not said, because saying it doesn't do it. Yeah. But triggering, and this is what the Buddha's teaching, as a teaching, is about. He's not saying, release is wonderful, release is fantastic, release is glorious, release is this, that, and the other. Because, okay, but does it get you there? We'd all go, oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, right. So it's, it's saying, we'd, it's just, we're not, we don't, we'll, you know, we, we didn't think it was worthwhile we would be doing it, so we don't need to make more of that. What we all need is the, the tools to, and the right point to touch to cause that springing, that letting go, that release. And this is what these teachings are about. <laughs> They're no more celebratory than a hammer and a screwdriver is, but when you want to build something, that's what you need. <laughs> when you want to dismantle something, that's what you need. Yeah. So it's a it's it's a kind of a, a very uh, broad and I would say mature perspective on it. I think for most of us, as we go through our stuff, we can't start out with a sense of di- you know complete dispassion and detachment basically you have to go through your stuff go through it work through one's fascinations and aversions and ideologies and passions and just waiting almost for that time when you come to a point when you can finally twig it like hey this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it this is what's happening it's I'm not doing it, it's doing me. I'm caught in this. And that's the moment when you, something in you, wakes up. Sometimes it's happening every time we breathe in and breathe out, and the mind wanders off, and you start to get involved, and something in you sooner or later goes, Hey, what's happening? Wow. And there's that moment, micro moment of release. When you're doing mindfulness of breathing, there's a lot places you release, and it's very much the same in our lives. We we find ourselves suddenly drawn into something, wound up about something, impassioned about something, and we go on with it and on with it. And there's a certain point, you we watch out for, or something, and you begins to sense when you realise, you know, you're all, you're in the game somewhere, and You don't need to be. It's not your game. There's no end to it. That's the moment of release. That takes wisdom and the compassion to bear with ourselves in that uh, non-averse, non-judgmental way. Bear with ourselves, bear with each other. This is how wisdom and compassion Work together uh, for our release and for the release of others. So, I'll offer this for your reflection tonight.